0: Um, so we're on to chapter five. We're, hopefully we'll get through chapter five today. Um, chapter five and six will end the visions of Zechariah. If you remember, we were saying that the book of Zechariah could be divided into two large parts. Hey, there's a million of different ways of classifying things. But one way of looking at the book is two parts, a part which is all about visions. Visions that had to do with uh, the building of the temple, and the second part uh, mostly or almost exclusively has to do with the coming of the Messiah. And we said that very early on that these two things are similar in that what is like what is the coming of the Messiah other than the coming of a, a, a human who will also be divine, so it'll be a human. Uh, uh, something, someone material, you can touch him, you can see him, you can feel him. And dwelling in him is the fullness of the divinity of God, right? Kind of like the temple, which is a, a physical place that also has the fullness of the divinity of God in it, right? And so in a certain sense, they're one and the same and we have been we've have been understanding this rebuilding of the temple as a historical event about 400 years before Christ. We have also been understanding it in regards to our own spiritual life, the rebuilding of a place, a dwelling place for the spirit of God in my own life. We've been understanding it as uh, also could be the, the incarnation uh, 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 of God, the, the, the nativity, the birth of Christ, so the coming of a, a human temple that would house the Spirit of God, like we were saying just a minute ago, we could also understood it as the, the coming of the kingdom forevermore, the second coming, and heaven, and the rebuilding of a temple which will never end, the heavenly Jerusalem, our going home and being going home to heaven and being with God forever there um, in his second coming after judgment day and all of that, where that we would be together with him forever. So we've been kind of, we've been understanding this business of rebuilding the temple in all of these different ways. And in chapter five and six, we're going to find a few more visions. Two visions in chapter five, one vision in chapter six, and then this this business of Joshua at the end of chapter six. And that will kind of complete for us the nine visions that Zechariah saw. So let's get started. So I was thinking to do something a little different today. I was thinking that maybe what we could do today is uh, we could read one vision and then uh, I could ask you what you think. Uh, and you can share what you think and then uh, what you liked or maybe your questions or what you wanna know. And then, uh, uh, and then I can answer your questions and, and then I can fill in the gaps and then we'll go to the next vision. Um, so four parts. So maybe we'll spend about 15 minutes on each part or so. Sound good? Try something different today. So Zechariah chapter five, Verse one, maybe I can't see the screen and if anybody's following on the screen, so maybe for the purposes of reading, I will just sit over here. Then I turned and raised my eyes and saw there was a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? Uh, the he here is the angel who was interpreting things for Zachariah. So, and the angel who was interpreting things for Zachariah said to me, said to Zachariah, what do you see? So I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole earth. Every thief shall be expelled according to this side of the scroll and every perjurer shall be expelled according to that side of it. I will send out the curse, says the Lord of hosts, It shall enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. It shall remain in the midst of his house and consume it with its timber and stones. Glory be to the Holy Trinity, our God unto the ages of all ages. Amen. So, Zechariah sees this scroll, which is flying. It was probably about something 10 by 20, a cubit is sort of the measure of the forearm of a, of a man, grown man from his elbow to his finger, about so uh, roughly about half a meter or so. And it's, there's writing on it on both sides. On one side, it says a curse against thieves. And on the other side, it says a curse against those who swear falsely in the name of the Lord what do you, what what do you think of this vision of zechariah the of judgment or yeah maybe both words were used In the, end.
1: the end of it here
0: Yeah, curse or judgment. I think both are fair words to use. Mm-hmm. What else?
1: I mean, it's mainly judgment for the people who violated the, uh, God's will or
0: God's preaching. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, was I and yeah, know? sure.
2: Like the flying will be very heavy.
0: Like the scale fall, and they
1: will be judged. Um, but I don't know why. This is my question. Why they picked the Persian and? Yeah. Why are those sins Yeah, like, sometimes I don't understand why the, the Bible picks one or two. Mm-hmm. Like, I understand that Persia or uh, is more like, because he talks badly about God. Mm-hmm. So,
0: so this is against God, and this is the first commandment. But I don't understand why he picks the second one which is a seed. Make sense? Mm-hmm. What do you guys think? Why don't we brainstorm a little together? Why, why would, the, the, why would they have singled out, like, Uncle Idol told us, I, you know, that I believe that this is judgment against those who break the commandments of God. That's fair. So why specifically st- stealing and Taking the name of the Lord in vain. This is two from the Yes. Yes, from the Ten Commandments. Yes. Yes. Yeah. But there is eight other commandments in the Ten Commandments.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, let's look it up. Go to Exodus twenty. course as guaranteed. Something must go. In Exodus 20, you'll find the list of Ten Commandments. So, thou shall not take the name of the Lord of God in vain, of your God in vain, and Also, um, uh, thou shall not steal, which, which are those? Sorry, the keyboard ran out of batteries, so I'm just... seventh or the eighth? I thought it was the eighth. Uh, so, so you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, is number three. Hello. Right? So, name of the Lord in vain, number three. Right? Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, number four. Honor your father and mother, number five. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal, number eight. Number three and number eight. (laughs) That's okay. Uh, it's okay. Don't worry about it. We'll think. What do you think is significant about number three and number eight? So I didn't come up with any of this by myself, by the way. This is all stuff that I read and, and so on. So one interpretation that I was reading about why commandment number three, we're reading Zechariah chapter five, and uh, Zechariah sees all these visions, and one of the visions, he sees this flying scroll, and on the scroll is uh thou shall not steal on one side, or cursed is the person who steals, and on the other side it says, Cursed is the person who takes the name of the Lord in vain. And so if you look, if you, if the Ten Commandments had been written on two tablets, then which commandment would be in the middle of the first tablet? Number three. And which commandment would be in the middle of the second tablet? Number eight. So one interpreter was saying that maybe uh, God is not saying so much just these two sins, but all the law, right, as represented by the central commandment on each on each tablet. That's one one interpretation. Um, another another thought was that uh, maybe people in that time, maybe, I don't know, were um, taking, uh, were lying and taking God's name in vain. Taking God's name in vain is not so much like people say, oh, like you should never say, oh God, this and that. Yeah, I agree. Sure, fine. Uh, no, no worries. Yeah, but it's more than that. What people used to do in olden, in the olden days, is that they would swear by something to give credibility to some to, to what they're saying. So uh, you know, uh, like instead of saying "I promise you, I'll pay you back the ten dollars," I'd say like, "As God is my witness." That w- that would be the equivalent of of swearing, right? And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount told us, "Don't swear by heaven or by earth or." by the temple or by this. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Let it be known to people that when you say something, you know, it is what it is. When Monica tells you she's going to be there at five, she's going to be there at five. When Messel tells you he's going to pay you back the five bucks he borrowed from you, he's going to pay them back. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be simple, be straightforward, be clear in such fashion that you don't need to swear by heaven or by earth or by God or by anything right because right when you would swear by something it would be that you are you are putting that thing on the line right it's almost like somebody I, I, right anyways right and so but jesus was trying to explain to us in the sermon on the mount you don't, you don't have authority over heaven or over earth or over the temple. Or, so God, as God is my witness, well, like, and so what, do you, what are you going to do? Like, if, if you don't hold true on your part of the bargain, you're going you're gonna to give somebody God? Like, is he a commodity now to give? So it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. To, so, but these people were using the name of God to swear things, to promise things, to vow things. Uh, And they weren't doing them. So in a certain sense, that's kind of theft. You know, if I promise you that I'm going to pay you $100,000 and I don't, it would be kind of like stealing that from you. And so um, one commentator equates a little bit of what was happening at that time with... what what we read, what we discussed about Haggai. We said that Haggai was another prophet, a lot older than Zechariah, and he lived at the same time. And he had the same message. You must rebuild the temple. You started building it, 15 years have gone by, and you've spent all that time building your own houses, living comfortably, and so on, and you've forgotten God. And that's why he tells them that you collect money and you put it in purses that have holes and you drink and you're not you're still thirsty and you eat and you're not satisfied. And no matter what you do, you're not you're not satisfied because you don't have the blessing of God because you have forgotten God and just to satisfy your own pleasures. Right. And so in a certain way, this is the same thing. This is stealing from God and just. Just about 70 to 100 years later, comes the last prophet in the Old Testament, Malachi. And he comes and he tells them, you are stealing from God when you refuse to tithe. And when you refuse and when you give God whatever is broken and whatever you don't need and whatever you don't want, you're you're giving to God your rubbish, right? Would your governor accept that? Would your boss accept that? No. So how come you do that for God, right? And so you find the same sort of this, they're all running in the same theme. So maybe it was something specific that was a specific problem at the time, or maybe it was all the law. Maybe it was it was all the law. But we're going to see at the end of chapter 6 that God is, is showing us great glory. And all of this great glory which he wishes to share with us is contingent on our obedience. Not because God is a difficult God or a mean God or, you know, it's tit for tat. If you obey me, I'll... No, not at all. But rather, but rather it's like okay so that uh, so that's a little bit about this um, that's a little bit about this uh, about this flying about this flying scroll um, a couple of other things I'll point out to you that are just r- really beautiful is that these prophecies were all written to the captives who were returning from Babylon to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple right but notice that at the end of chapter, Let's go back to the the text. At the end of chapter 4, God is described as the Lord of the whole earth. Right? And then in chapter 5, who is this prophecy to? Just the Jews who came to rebuild the temple? No. This prophecy is to... The face of the whole the face of the whole earth, right? And so most commentators understand this passage, the next one, and the next one after it, the next, the last three visions, as God is coming to purify the whole earth. Why? To establish his reign. Right? So he's coming to clean up house, he's so that he can so that he can build his kingdom anew. And so Some people, when they read this, they feel that, you know, how terrible of God to come and to judge and to this and to that, right? And how dare God do that? Some people, that's their feeling when they read these passages. Other people, when they read these passages, they say, Lord, come. Lord, come. The world is full of injustice. The world is full of evil. The world is full of all kinds of bad things, full of good things too. It's full of good and beautiful things that God will take and glorify those beautiful things and they will persist in the kingdom. But when, O oh Lord, when, O oh Lord, will you come? Tomorrow is, 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 you know, is yesterday would be too late, you know, hurry up and come. And that's what we find in the book of Revelation at the very end of the book of Revelation. It says, and the bride... Um, and uh, says, "Come!" And the church says, "Come!" And the Spirit says, "Come! Come, Lord Jesus, come!" Those are the last, the last few words in the book of Revelation, the last book, the last few words in the Bible. Right? Is verse uh, 17 in Revelation 22:17 and the spirit and the bride say come and let him who hears say come and let him who thirsts come whoever desires let him take of the water of life freely so god is drawing near and the, the if you ask yourself like once I asked myself like when Jesus started to preach the gospel what did he say Like, what did he tell people? I am the Messiah here to save you. That's not what he said. What did he say? He said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But he revealed to them that the kingdom of heaven was indeed there. And it was indeed there. Why? Because he was there. Because he himself, he showed them the sick were being healed. The dead were being raised. The demons were being cast out. And... And Jesus says, and the gospel was being preached to the poor. So, God is calling you and He's calling me to trust Him. To trust Him that He will take me and clean me up. And the things that don't belong will be removed. And all that will be left will be that which is pure and that which is holy and that which belongs in the kingdom of heaven. Find a similar passage about that in 1 Corinthians chapter three. So when I read these passages and in, in a lot of the other passages of the prophets where it talks about the destruction of the wicked and all of that, I read that with hope. I read that with hope. I read that with hope for myself. I recognize wickedness in myself, I do. And I hate it. You know how St. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, he says, the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, these I do. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? Who will save me from myself? Jesus will come and save me and separate that which has no place in the kingdom of heaven, in me, from that which belongs in the kingdom of heaven. And I look forward to that day. I look forward to the day where I'll be freed from my self-destructive behaviors and habits, right? And God is calling all of us to work through that salvation in our day-to-day. And that's what it means when, uh, 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 when it says in scripture, uh, let each person work out their own salvation in fear and trembling, right? And through through the, the the daily practice of our of our being with God, our communion with Him, in prayer, and reading the Bible, and staying up a little bit late, waking up a little bit early, in seeking in seeking God, my eyes are opened to these to the things which don't belong and they and they are and they are removed. Whatever does whatever persists till judgment day, I believe God will deal with it. And that's how I read these passages of judgment. And that's why for me, there, I have a sense of hope. In the olden days, in the Old Testament, and even part of the New Testament, the Jews would read these as deliverance from their captors, from the people who are, they were captive to, whether it was the Romans or the Greeks or whoever, you know, whoever, whoever was, was enslaving them at the time, right? But see, now I'm not enslaved by anybody other than by my own evil habits and my own wicked desires. And so I look forward to, the, to my liberation, to my redemption, to my deliverance, from essentially from myself. But that's what Jesus says. If you want to be my disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. My biggest enemy is not the big bad guy out there, or the devil, or the my, my worst enemy is myself. In a sense, my, my ego, my personhood, my being full of myself, you know? You call somebody who's proud and arrogant, full of themselves, right? So that's how I read all of these passages. Let's read the next little bit, the next vision. The woman in the basket. Monica, do you want to read for us? Yeah, sure. Why don't you scroll for us? Yeah, sure. Why don't you read and scroll? Then the angel who talked with me came out and said to me, "Lift your eyes now and see
1: what this is. See what this is that goes forth." So I asked, What is it? And he said, It is a basket that is going forth. He also said, This is their resemblance throughout
2: the woman sitting inside
1: of the basket. Then he said weakness. And he thrust her down to the basket and threw the lead, cover over its mouth. Then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were two women, coming with the women and their wings, for they had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. So I said to the angel who talked with me, where, where are they carrying the basket? And he said to me, To build a house for it in the land of Shinar. When it is ready, the basket
0: will be set there on its face. Okay. Why don't we, again, I'll just ask you for your questions, your observations, your thoughts, and we'll. Uh, there, you can ask anything or make any observation. Shinar. So I had to look it up. Uh, With us another little trick about reading the Bible and understanding things in the Bible. Um, uh, He taught us that whenever you see a proper name, whenever you see a proper like a name of a place or a name of a person or a name of something, and you want to know what is the spiritual significance of this, right? So the word Shinar uh, means a uh, place of two rivers. That's what it means. You know, there's a city in Quebec called Trois-Rivières, three rivers, maybe they name places sometimes after the geographic kind of, uh, you know, feature of the area or whatever, right? So there's, a, so Shinar means two rivers and it's specifically referring to Babylon. It's specifically referring to Babylon uh, uh, or Chaldea, um, which was the place that the, these captives who came back to rebuild Jerusalem were coming from. Okay, great historical fact. Now my life is complete. I know that Shinar means <laughs> means two rivers, means Babylon. I'm ready to go to heaven, right? I've... <laughs> <laughs> right? No. Right? It doesn't really add anything to you. I mean, it's an interesting fact. Right? So h- what spiritual benefit can we receive when from reading these proper names? Father Mark was telling us what you do is you go back and
2: you search. So
0: there. Uh, sorry that I kept the keyboard. I should have given it to you. And then so if I put Shinar in there. Oh. Da, da da Anytime now. There we go. In the Bible. So, Father Mark was teaching us that usually, usually the first...
2: the spiritual significance of that thing is the spiritual significance which is throughout
0: the rest of scripture if we look up where does shinar appear first it appears in genesis 10:10 so if you just click full chapter there so that we have we can have it all and then if you go down to about verse 10 right there you go so we get into the story of nimrod if you go to scroll to the top just for the section header they're just to the very, very top at the beginning of the chapter. The nations descended from Noah. So Noah was a good guy. Everybody was evil. God flooded the world. He survived in an ark with a bunch of animals. Three days later, everybody comes out. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their three wives, eight people, right? Eight is always a symbol. A sy- like the, There's like... A, it's called numerology, the, the, the symbolism associated with numbers. Eight is often a symbol of the world because the whole world was reconstituted from eight people, right? Was repopulated by eight people. Anyhow, Noah had three sons, right? And they went off and had other children and descendants. And so how, how, did, how did the whole world get populated from these eight people? Who came from who? What's the family tree like? That's what this chapter is all about. So... Shem Ham and Japheth Ham Shem Ham and Japheth Ham one of Noah's sons had sons one of his sons was Cush and Cush's son is Nimrod so Nimrod is like Noah's great great grandson okay now Nimrod he was a mighty one in the earth a mighty hunter before the Lord and it was said of him like Nimrod the mighty hunter before the Lord and the beginning of his kingdom was babel Eric, akkad and kala in the land of shinar so what is shinar shinar is this place that was named by this guy whose name was nimrod and he was the first mighty warrior after the flood right now what do we how do we understand that he was a mighty warrior right so he was Powerful because of power that God gave him or because of power of his own? Power of his own. So he was someone who took matters into his own hands, right? And so he was someone who used his power, his strength, his ability to, to build himself up, right? Rather than to build, you know, the kingdom of heaven or whatever, right? And so he is symbolic of like power Power, might, strength in oneself. So the exact opposite, actually, and I hadn't planned it that way, of what we were just talking about—that my greatest enemy is myself. I can, and I'm strong, and I'm able. And we're not saying be a doormat or have low self-esteem. That's not what we're saying. But we're saying give glory to God.
2: Later,
0: first son, Shem was a very godly man, and his. Children very godly Ham, the very, very much violent people. Very, they were, they were practically just as bad as the people before the flood. You know, uh, burn their children alive and satanic, horrific stuff. Come from the family of Ham, right? And here's this guy Nimrod who built himself an empire, probably you know, killing other people and so on. So what is Shinar? Shinar is Babylon, is might and strength and power. Right? That's what Shinar is. I'm a bit lost here. Yeah. How does God relate the vision of the woman and the
2: basket? And the other two women have
1: taken the basket. Excellent. I'm missing
0: yeah, excellent. Like, uh, um, Monica, go back to Zechariah chapter 5 for us. So what's this, What's the story of this vision?
2: The angel tells him, look up. He looks up. And the angel tells him, He says, oh, I see a woman being killed. And then this lead disc is taken
0: to squash her into the basket. And then he sees two w- women with wings like storks who are actually the ones carrying the basket. And then they take the basket and they go and they set it
2: The house is prepared for it. It's down, right?
0: Understood as the power in one's own self. Then they set it down. That's the story, right? But obviously now we understand what Shinar is. But obviously you must have some other questions. Questions, and I don't not as if like I am the most like I had to research all this stuff before coming. Yes. Carried it to Babylon. Yes. And, then what? and they set it down there, in a in a house. So this, wh- when it says they set it down in a house, that means that it, it took residence there, it resided there. So it, it, it grew roots there, you know, as opposed to they set it down and they picked it up again. They, you, know, you know what I mean? Like it's very different to be a traveler, like to be stopping by versus to go and to settle there. Yeah, the place the place of um self, you know, of glorying in oneself.
1: So in a different translation it doesn't say wickedness, it says inequality.
0: Sure. So Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So lots of there's lots of really beautiful things that are are written about this, and I'll just share a few of them. Why is it? Why is it a woman? Like, why is the Bible so sexist that it's the woman who is wickedness? Why couldn't it be a man? I mean, if you think about it, probably most of the atrocities that were being committed at that time were probably being committed by men, not by women, right? It's very simply. It's very simply a translation thing. W- wickedness uh, in in uh, in Hebrew is uh, is feminine. Just uh, we have a lot of difficulty understanding this in English. Because, uh, in English. We don't associate gender to things. You know, but if you know French, then you know that it's la chaise, la table, le chat, le chat, le chien, and so on. You know what I mean? So everything same thing and so on, right? Uh, and so we, wickedness is is feminine. And you're going to be like, oh, why, oh, why is language so sexist then, right? Well, I'll share with you one commentator is saying, Father Tedros is saying that guess what? Well, wisdom is also feminine, right? So <laughs> It's not all bad, right? And in the book of Wisdom, it says, Wisdom has built a house for herself. This is the English translation. It says, Wisdom has built a house for herself, and she has hewn out seven pillars. And in the house of wisdom, the bread and the wine are served, which are the the healing of the nations. Of course, this is talking about wisdom as the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, has hewn out a house for herself, the church. Right? So in English we would think of wisdom as as an it, not a him or a her, right? But linguistically it's a her. So, you know, just so nobody gets too uh, gets 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 too uh, gets too gets too upset, right? Uh the two women who took her self destruction, like it's always women giving themselves no, no, not necessarily. Um, so, for, if you read in Matthew, I believe, 22, it says, Jesus says that um, they tell him, like, you, you know, the story about the the guy who got married and then he died and then his brother took up his wife and he died and then the other brother died and he died and so on and seven brothers and they all died, Right? And who in heaven, who's, whose wife shall she be? Trick Jesus uh, by asking him this like this kind of like very unlikely scenario in the law. And they're trying to kind of squeeze it out of Jesus, right? And Jesus tells them, you are gravely mistaken and you know nothing. He basically says to them, the Sadducees that were saying this, bringing this up to him. He says to them, because in the kingdom of heaven, those who are in the kingdom of heaven are like the angels and they do not marry nor are given in marriage. From that passage, the church has commonly believed that the angels are without gender. But in scripture, the angels are usually referred to as male. So if these are, if these are somewhat angelic-like creatures, these two women with stork wings carrying the basket and all of that, but they're not so they're not your typical angel. So what's like angel? Not a trick question. Devils, yeah, right? So they're like demons. You know what I mean? Not because again, not because it's not gender associated because they should be without they should be without any gender. What's this business of storks? You know they have stork wings? Well, storks were very well known and uh, there are two kind of major breeds of storks um, and the storks that were in Palestine and, the, and in and in that area were scavenger animals and they ate reptiles and they ate frogs and lizards and so on and if they couldn't find any of that then they were like vultures they ate dead corpses and stuff like that so in the book of Leviticus they were con- an unclean animal, and most people considered them like a pest that carried disease and so on, right? So all of that, like we think when you say stork, I think of like the, the, the beautiful bird that brings babies to people's homes, right? But that's not how 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 the, the, the people in that area understood storks. They thought of them more the way we would think of vultures or crows or ravens or, you know, I don't know, you know... Uh, um, scavenger animals that, that generally carry disease, you know? So, that's how, so that's how, uh, so that's what, That's how this was understood. What about this business of the lead? Oh, yes, please, please, yeah.
1: Well, I was just going to ask if she was being removed in place, or if she was being placed under, she must have been removed from somewhere, correct? So, where would she, because like, you were talking about earlier, like the reference to the whole earth and say again in verse 6 as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I was
2: Uh, so, I'll share, I'll, I'll, sh- I'll share with you. So, from verse 6. What's, what was a, a basket? The word for basket here. The
0: measure uh, like that they had. A, a volume that they had. Right? But even an ephah. An ephah would have been like half a barrel. Right? Or so. So an an effa wouldn't have been enough enough volume to put a human in. So this isn't a, this isn't a, like a physical effa. This is a this has some other some other meaning. Gone forth when something goes forth, it almost has the same meaning to in 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 their in their time, and they would have understood this without interpretation, as when you and I would say gone off. Like if, I, if, if you're at my house and you see an apple on the counter and you feel very at home and you just put your hand to the apple and you're about to put it in your mouth, I go to, oh, maybe, nah, maybe don't eat that. I think it might have gone off, you know? So in our, in our, you know, in our English, you understand that as, as it's not good anymore. It's rot rotten. It was good and it's, it's gone. It's gone bad. It's gone rotten. It's gone, right? So this gone forth is the same thing. Like, same thing. Like gone off, right? So there's a measure which has gone off. What does that mean? Well, many, many, many other times in Scripture, you'll find God rebuking people, specifically merchants, that, they're, that they use unjust measures. What does that mean? Well, when you would go to like when you would go to the market, and this still like I still saw this with my grand. Egypt, we would go to the market to buy a bunch of tomatoes, right? You go to the market to buy a bunch of tomatoes, you ask how much they tell you, I don't know, uh, uh, two pounds per kilo, right? So you collect the tomatoes, you put them in the balance. they have weights and they put them on the other side of the balance, right? And the weight says on it like one kilo, two kilos, three kilos, four kilos, right? So what people would do is unfairly like illegally they would make the they would make it the, the 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 thing heavier than it should be right and so they had unjust measures so he would put a weight there that says two kilos right but it's really like it's really like two and a half right and then the thing balances out so it's oh uh, so, sorry it, it, less the other way the other way right it's really like one and a half right and so then so then you're only buying two kilos of tomatoes, but he charges you for two and a half, right? So here's an Epha, which is not the right size, has gone and has gone off. It's a measure which has gone off, right? And what, what is he, and then, it, and then his business of Babylon. What do you think the Jews learned who went, who went to Babylon and when they returned, what was very different about the ones Who went from the ones who returned. I'll tell you, because I would have never guessed, right? When they went when they lived in Judea previously, and if if you've ever been to the Holy Land, you'd know, but lots of places in that region are like that. Anything can grow anywhere. I promise you, we were walking in the street and on the sidewalk, and like the little weeds that grow up between the different blocks of sidewalks. like you know you take a leaf of something and you rub it in your hands and it's some beautiful herb here they're like useless weeds that grow you know it the land is so fertile and it's so it was largely an agricultural nation right prior this is prior to captivity when they went to babylon and they spent 70 years there. So say some, peop- some of the, them had managed to get established there. And we previously said that only 50,000 of them returned to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. Why? Why did they just stay in Babylon? Like, you, you were captives. Now you're free. You can go back. You can rebuild. And they decide not to. Oh, probably there were over 4 million and only 50,000 went back. Why so few? Right? Because they were comfortable. How did they get comfortable? They learned. Babylon was like the center center of the, the empire, the Babylonian empire at the time, or Chaldean empire at the time, and later on the Persian empire at the time. What did they learn? They learned how to do trade. So they went as farmers to Babylon. They came back as businessmen, right? But what kind of business did they learn in Babylon? Yeah, they learned kind of cheeky business, right? They learned how to cheat, they learned how to steal, they learned how to have unjust measures, right? And so they come back from, ba- from Babylon to rebuild and they are, they've learned, what have they learned? They've learned commercialism, right? And this isn't a slag business. Uh, you know, fair business is fair business and there's nothing wrong with fair business, right? But this is about unfair business, right? Now, what's the business? What, what about this lead disc? So the, as, as the woman is being carried away and she's segregated in Babylon, right? So she's being ca- carried away from the whole earth. The wickedness is being taken from the whole earth and being like segregated in Babylon, right? She tries to ca- crawl out. So this lead disc comes and acts like as a lid, you know? to keep to keep her there to make sure that sh- she doesn't climb back out and spread into all the earth right remember these are all chapters about like the sanctification making holy of the whole of the whole earth right in revelation 18 you find saint john has these visions about babylon the great city and it's full of merchants who, do, who buy and sell and trade, right? And they all have the mark of the beast. And that's why they're able to do business. And those who, who refuse to have the mark of the beast can, cannot do business. And they nearly starve, right? And then Babylon is destroyed. And after that, in Revelation 19, you see the vision of the holy city, the bride of Christ, the heavenly Jerusalem. And the contrast between Babylon and the heavenly Jerusalem is so stark. Read it when you get home. Read Revelation 18 and Revelation 19. In a previous Bible study I had shared with you, one of my friends gave me this advice. Whenever I get extremely discouraged and I feel like I'm just ready to give up hope and toss in the towel, go read Revelation 19, 20, 21, and 22. Like, read how it all ends, you know? Read how beautiful it is. Read about Jesus, the champion of heaven who comes riding out on his white horse, he doesn't just send his armies to go deal with Armageddon. No, he himself leads the charge and on his thigh is written true and faithful, you know? And, and the images that, are, that come are, are in um, those latest chapters of the book of Revelation, 19, 20, 21, 22, are so beautiful, so full of hope. And whenever I feel like I've, I'm about ready to give up hope, I go and read them. And... Um, you know, sort of like reading, reading the end of the book before, you know, the rest of it, right? Knowing how it ends, how it all ends, and what team I'm on uh, gives me a lot of hope. Let's jump into chapter 6. Um, and, um, um, and we're going to find in chapter 6 a few, a few things, a few really beautiful things also to encourage us. And this, this will be the end of, of Zechariah's visions. You got uh, chapter 6 for us? Who would like to read? Messel, do you want to read for us? Sure. We'll read 6, 1 through 8. Then I turned the and
1: raised my eyes, and looked, and behold, four chariots were coming from between the two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of rock. The first chariot were red horses, and the second chariot, black horses, and the third chariot, white horses, and with the fourth chariot, dappled horses, strong steeds. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my lord? And the angel answered and said to me, these are four spirits of heaven who go out from their station before the lord of all the earth. The one with the black horses is going to the north country, the white are going after them, and the dappled are going toward the south country. And the strong steeds went out eager to go that they might walk to and fro throughout the earth. And he said, Go walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they walked to and fro throughout the earth. And he called to me and spoke to me, saying, See those who go toward the earth, give rest to my spirit in the north country.
0: So here we get this image of the of these of these four not horsemen. Like in the book of Revelation, but four different sets of chariots, horses with chariots, right? Now, if you quickly flip to Zechariah chapter 1, you'll remember that in Zechariah chapter 1, he also saw four horsemen, right? The very beginning of, of when we first started studying this. He saw in chapter one, verse eight, I saw by night and behold, a man riding on a red horse and it stood among the myrtle trees in the hollow. And behind him were horses, red, sorrel, which kind of means brownish and white. At that time, he was seeing that red horseman he was seeing was an image of the son of God. And he was, he sent the horsemen, the, the red horsemen, sent the other horsemen into the world to see what the Gentile nations were up to. And they came back and they reported they were at peace. And the, the, this red horseman who was like the son of God, I'm just reviewing for you what happened in chapter one. He was indignant, he was, he was angry that the Gentile nations that had harassed the people of God and enslaved them and taken them into captivity were at peace. He was crying out to the Lord of Hosts and we're saying how this is this is all Trinitarian theology in the Old Testament. People like oh, people invent the word Trinity doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible. You all you all Christians made that stuff up 200 years or 300 years after after Jesus had come and gone right here. You find this son of man figure is crying out to the Lord of Hosts and saying, Lord, when when will you bring justice for your people? That was the, 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 the Zechariah chapter one image of these horsemen. So the horsemen were, went out and they surveyed the Gentiles and they reported back. Now, if we go to chapter six, we find that there's also chariots rather than horsemen. And where do they go out to? Let's look over the text again. Where are they sent to and what do they do? Yeah, and eight. In, in 8, in chapter, uh, verse six. chapter 6, yeah, chapter 6, maybe uh, verses, uh, so verse 5 describes what they are. What are these horsemen? The four of they are the four spirits of heaven, right? And so... By these four spirits of heaven, we understand them to be the spirit, the spirit of God, which is in all the earth, right? The word four, oftentimes like four cardinal points, north south, east, west, west, is sort of like covers the whole earth. Again, this symbolic numerology uh, you know we can go through all the numbers from sort of one to twenty and then up to fifty a hundred and a thousand and so on. they all have They all have symbols, and there's multiple s- symbols associated with the same number, so sometimes you have to ask yourself what which which one is the one that makes sense you know but four often oftentimes sometimes the four gospels uh, sometimes four is referring to the gospel. Right? Um, and in a sense, they're the same. The gospel went out to all the earth. You know, so four gospels went out to the four corners of the earth, the four cardinal points, north, south, east, west, and so on. Okay. So the spirit of God that is in all the earth. So that's what these four horsemen are. And then what do they do? The black goes to the north country, and the white one follows after, and the da- dappled is like. Uh, is like uh, the like uh, dotted or striped. So when it says stripes, I don't know, I kind of thought of zebras, you know, <laughs> but I didn't read that in any commentary. So don't, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the Bible talks about zebras. You know, I don't know, my, my, my priest told me so, um, but that dappled means dotted or striped or streaked. Um, the only other word, place where this word comes up is, do you remember Jacob? Was stuck in his father, in his in his uncle's house, Laban's house, and uh, Laban gave him after he worked in his house for some time. He gave him a, a, cu- a couple of sheep and a couple of goats, and so mm-hmm. he would breed the sheep and the goats. He would breed Laban's sheep and goats, and he would breed his, right? And his would come out beautiful and spotless, and would many in number, and Laban's would come out spotted and streaked and whatever. And then she so told him, okay, I'm gonna and streaked ones so laban kept the good ones and gave him the spot so then he would breed the spotted and streaked ones and they would be many 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 and and the pure white ones would would be uh would, would would breed very very little so that's the only other place where this word in hebrew comes up and there it's translated as spotted and streaked here it's translated as dappled but it's the same word in the hebrew scriptures used in both places So anyways, that's what that means. Okay, so some of them go to the north, some of them go to the south. And what do they do in verse, what is it, seven? Then the strong steeds went out eager to go that they might walk to and fro throughout the earth. And he said, go and walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they go all all throughout the earth. And then what happens? And he called to me and spoke to me saying, see, those who go towards the north country have given rest to my spirit in the north country. So, the north country here is Babylon. Again, um, again, think of where Jerusalem is and what's south of Jerusalem, what other major superpower was south of Jerusalem? Egypt, right? So the ones that go to Egypt are not mentioned, wh- what happens to them or what they do, right? But the ones that go to the north, they bring peace to the spirit of God, right? So Babylon, which at the end of chapter 5 was where wickedness was all segregated then he sends his horsemen there and they clean up the mess whatever that means right and they bring peace to the spirit of god in that place so now we finished all of the visions of Zechariah. there's a lot more we could say about these horsemen but for the sake of time we'll leave them be let's read the last part of chapter 6 and let's finish talking about glory, because God loves glory. Who wants to read for us chapter 6, verse 9 through 15? The last, last six verses, and we'll wrap it up.
1: Thank you. Yeah, sure. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Receive the gift from the captives from Heldea, Jabijah, and Jedediah." who have come from Babylon and go the same day and enter the house of Joshua, the son of Zephaniah. Take the silver and gold, make an elaborate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest. Then speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch. From his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. Now the elaborate crown shall be for a memorial in the temple of the Lord, for Helen, Tobijah, Jedediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. Then those from afar shall come and build the temple of the Lord. Then you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if
0: you diligently obey the voice of the Lord our God. And glory be to the Holy Trinity, our God, unto the ages of all ages. Amen. So, what happens here? So this isn't a vision. This is a command. Then the word of the Lord the gift that is going to be in the hands of these three men who came from Babylon what did they bring from Babylon with them? Gold and silver so take the gold and silver that they from Babylon they, what they probably did is they said look they're rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem we will collect gold and silver from you Jews who are in Babylon and bring it back to Jerusalem so they can use it in the rebuilding of the temple so, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah said, Go, take that gold and silver from them that was collected in Babylon. And from it, make a crown. And go, right? And go into this house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. And take that crown and put it on the head of Joshua. And then speak this prophecy about a branch and some other things. We'll talk about that briefly, right? And then that will be a sign. And then take that crown off of, of, of Joshua's head and put it in the temple in a special place. That's basically, that's basically this, this command. So what is he talking about? So these guys have collected all this gold and silver while they were in Babylon. They must have had some kind of like, you know, like armed bodyguards or something like because people always got robbed in ancient times and still until now when they travel. Right. And so they invested in like, you know, mercenaries to protect them as they brought the gold and silver from Babylon to Jerusalem and all of this. And it was all for the building of the temple. The temple of the Lord. Right? It's kind of strange, right? What does he do? He makes a crown and he crowns Joshua the high priest. Remember, this is very much similar, this this, this commandment to the vision that Zechariah had in chapter three about the high priest, and he was in filthy garments. Remember filthy here meant like almost excrement covered that we read in chapter three, and he he, he strips him of filthy garments garments on him and a, and a turban right and the angel of the Lord stood by and we talked be- about that it was very very beautiful and this was a restoration in chapter 3 of the priesthood specifically a vision of Christ restoring the priesthood right so what's going on over here something different because he doesn't put a turban on him he puts a crown well what what do crowns who do crowns usually belong to Kings, right now, kings—the the lineage of kings, David and his—they were from the house of the tribe of like twelve tribes, twelve sons of Jacob. Which which son of Jacob were they from? Judah. The priests, who were they children of? They were children of a different son of Jacob, Levi, right? So these, these, uh, these sons of Jacob, they became tribes, tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Asher, the tribe of Gad, the tribe of, and so on. The tribe of Judah, David was of the tribe of Judah. And so all of his children would be the children. So priests, those were one bunch of people, And kings, they were a different bunch of people. So you never had a king who was a priest. In fact, Uzziah the king wanted to be a priest and went to the temple to offer sacrifices and God killed him. Well, he gave him leprosy until he repented and then he died shortly thereafter. But all of this to say that God did not take lightly to people doing not what they were called to do. Everybody was called to something and they were supposed to stick to the thing that they were called to, right? So who is the only one who is both king and high priest? Jesus, right? And so this is directly pointing to Jesus. Now, what did I tell you that we were wrapping up today? Today, in the first six chapters of Zechariah, we were wrapping up the visions of Zechariah. He gets all these really, as you can see, very interesting, very colorful visions. And uh, they were all about the rebuilding of the temple. And we said the second half of Zechariah is all about what? The coming of the Messiah, right? And so he's telling them, he's telling him that this gold and silver, which you thought was for the temple, was not, is not for the temple. It's for who? It's for the Messiah. And he crowns Joshua for a moment, so that they can so that they can understand that somehow there will be a a priest king but then he takes it off of Joshua's head because Joshua is not the king he's just the high priest there is a governor at the time whose name is Zerubbabel who is of the lineage of David but not would would not have been next to be king but he is the governor and he's the one overseeing all of this building and he is the political Power that God is working through, and and Joshua is the religious power or the spiritual power that God is working through in their time, right? Um, and so much more can be can be said about it, but I'll just go to that little little prophecy, verse twelve. If you just scroll up slightly to verse verse twelve and thirteen, thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the Branch, and um, uh, when we were talking about. Uh, we were talking about this, uh, I, I believe, chapter two. In chapter two, we were talking about how the branch is a specific, uh, a specific indication of Jesus. And the, the word, the branch will come and the branch will do and so on, comes up in four specific different places in the Old Testament. And each one of them resembles a different gospel. And we talked about that in, in, in uh, we talked about that when we talked, I think about that in chapter two. So here, behold, is the, behold the man whose name is the branch. So now he's transitioning from the visions into there's a Messiah who's coming, Right. And what, sh- what will this branch do? He will branch out into all the world. So again, the, the Lord of all the earth, like we've been talking for the last two chapters, no more just talking about Jerusalem or Judea or, or the people of God or Israel, but we're talking about a branch which will branch out into all, into all the earth. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord, He shall bear the glory. Now, he shall bear the glory. What does it mean to bear something? To carry something. What is Jesus most noted for carrying? The cross, right? The cross. And many, many times in many, many different sermons and talks and different things, we've talked about how the cross and the, and the glory are the same. That Christ is most glorified in the cross. The most glorious thing he ever did was to be crucified for us. The, the greater love has no man than this. The greatest love that one could have for someone is, Jesus says, to give his life for his friends. Right? That The cross and the glory are the same. So here he said, and he shall bear the glory we understand that spiritually, obviously, of course, if I lived in Zachariah's time, I would have no idea what he's talking about. But we understand that now as he shall, by the cross, and he shall sit and rule on his throne. What is his throne? Does anybody remember, does anybody remember in the 12th hour of Great Friday, a psalm is sung, and it's not sung in the usual solemn tune, it's, not in the, it's called the Adribi tune. The Adribi tune or Adribi tune is the Keperto tune. It's the tune that the, almost all the Psalms are re- sung in during Holy Week. But four times, the Psalm is sung in a different tune. What's it called? It's called the Royal tune. What, what is that Psalm in the 12th hour? Your throne, O Lord, is forever and ever. That psalm is sung twice, pek in Coptic. Pek Pic pek is the, or your, or the possessive, your, pek, and ethronos, throne, right? Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. It's like an 18-minute hymn. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, alleluia. <laughs> Those are the words of the 18 minutes, right? And, uh, and we're singing to him. Twice that psalm is sung the first time when jesus says that he will be crucified and it's at that time that we add to the the, to the to the to the holy week hymn we we add my good savior because he's declared how he will save us so we usually we sing like uh um vine is the power the glory the blessing the majesty forever amen Oh my Lord Jesus Christ, the, sec- the, second, the second verse. And then in that 11th, I want to say the 11th hour of Tuesday or Wednesday, I always get it mixed up, Wednesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. The 11th hour of Tuesday, we add, we add, oh my Lord Jesus Christ, my good Savior, because He's declared to us how He will save us. And in the, the last words of the gospel of the 11th hour of Tuesday, He says, for the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So the first time the cross is mentioned, we associate it with salvation. And the psalm which is sung to precede that gospel is, "Your throne, O God, is forever and ever." What does the cross have to do with a throne? Because here it says, "He shall sit and rule on his throne." And worse, I'm telling you that where did he rule? Where does he rule from? Where does Jesus rule from? The cross. What is his throne? He sits the king sits on his throne and he judges the nations, right? That's what a king would do. Like in ancient times, that's what a king would spend most of his time doing. He would sit on his throne and he would judge. He was like the Supreme Court. He would judge the cases that the lower judges couldn't find resolution for or, or the appeals or whatever, right? So he would sit on his throne to judge. So what throne is he sitting on? Or are we saying? On the cross. Why is the cross his throne? Because the judge sits and he, he judges by what? By the law. What is the law of the kingdom? Love. The law of the kingdom is love. What standard did God give us in treating each other? A new commandment I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you. He says on Thursday night and on Friday, he shows us what does it mean as I have loved you. That's the standard. That's the law. That's the new law. That's the law of the kingdom. So he sits to rule on his throne, the cross. The ultimate love. So he shall be a priest on his throne. So here he's explicit in saying that the, this, this high priest will be both priest and king, because he sits on a throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. Between what both? Between the priesthood and, and the sovereignty, because it will be united in one person. But this could not have made any sense In the Old Testament, because priests were one tribe and kings were another. So this only makes sense in Jesus, in the Messiah. Who's calling us and calling you and calling me to live by the law of the new kingdom. Right? To be crucified. And that's what... Okay, we'll finish with this. Other than my own little naughty pleasures... Why does the priest go around spraying everybody with water afterwards? Right? When I was a kid, when I was a kid, I was two years old or three years old, I turned to my mom and I said, Abuna's really naughty. He sprays everybody with water. Lo and behold, when I became a priest, I take my own little naughty pleasure in spraying people with water, especially the people who aren't looking. The person who's leaning over and talking to somebody and the water smacks them by the back of the head, you know? Maybe these things should not be recorded. <laughs> right? Why does the priest spray everybody with water at the end? It's Auntie Sue, you look like you were gonna say something.
1: <laughs>
0: there you go. Right? Uh so um so why so so in the in in the early church the, the the bishop, there were no priests. There was deacons and bishops. The priests were kind of a, a newer invention. Once the bishops, that there were too many churches for one bishop, so he would ordain people to support support him, priests to support him. Um, what's, what's this with this business of the water? The bishop would go and bless each person. In the weekday liturgies, when there's only 10, 12, 15 people or something, I'll make an effort to go and lay a hand on each pe- person. And he would t- say as he was doing that, and I say it as I'm, as I'm going around, but you can't hear me because the deacons are singing the concluding hymn, Amina and so on. So you can't hear because and I say it in a low voice. He would say, go in peace. It was a blessing, a benediction. It was a sending out right it was ascending out why because you have received the broken body of Christ in holy communion and now you are being sent out to go out in all the world and you've been united with the body of Christ now you go and be Christ broken for the life of the world like jesus says this is my body which is broken for the life of the world so his life-giving body is broken and given to us and gives us life now you have been united in the flesh with him now you go out and be and be a source of life everywhere you go how by being broken for the world by breaking yourself in love because there's no greater love than this than to give one's life for his for your friends right and so we find here the same theme the same theme of suffering and glory and and love and the cross it's it's you find it in in everything it's a uniting theme you find it in the liturgy you find it in the prophecies you find it in the salvific work of Christ you find it in every everywhere right and so god is calling you and he's calling me to share in his glory but don't be fooled. His, his glory is His cross. His glory is His suffering on our behalf. He's calling you and me to go out into the world and to find people who are suffering and to share in their suffering. There's a beautiful book I have called The Ministry of Co-Suffering Love. The service of going to people who are suffering and choosing by your own free will, you don't have to, but you choose to, to suffer with them. And that is the work of Christ. That's, the, that's what Messiah, that's what, that's what he did. He came, was incarnate in our reality. He joined us in our reality. And he suffered with us in our reality that he could make it not suffering, but make it glorious. So God is calling you and me to go and to do the same. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen. Next week, we'll do maybe seven seven and eight or maybe just seven seven is a is some beautiful teachings about fasting eight uh, so we'll see what chapters kind of go well together god bless you let's pray